0: Loving and gracious God, we picture the mountaintop experience of the disciples. Peter, James,
1: and John, chosen.
2: They were awed and frightened. They didn't know what to do.
0: One of them, Peter, wanted to build special festival booths for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, where people could come to receive healing and blessing. It would have been so easy to stay up, up on the mountain, offering healings and blessings, and never again descending to the valley below. But Jesus has work for us to do, work and service in a variety of places We are called to receive God's goodness and grace, not for ourselves alone, but to give it to others, to model it, to offer grace, offer mercy, offer forgiveness, compassion, hope, and peace. These are difficult things to do in the face of the anger and hostilities that seem to abound in the world. We hold on to the reality that we are not alone and we give thanks. God is with us and with others. May we feel the power of God's love flooding over us, coursing through our veins, encompassing our spirit, letting God's strength, hope, and peace abide. And now let us pray together the the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. you mm-hmm.
2: witness of scripture this morning begins in Exodus. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in to speak before the Lord, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. We continue from the Gospel according to Luke. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen.
1: A friend sent an email this week talking about this Sunday and the story of Christ's transfiguration. However, instead of the word transfiguration, the word arrived with one letter changed. The first I became an O. Transfoguration. Well, something can be wrong and right all at the same time. And transfoguration seems to be the perfect description for the living of these days. We know there are many reasons for our living in a fog. The last two years, COVID has transfogured our days, but it is only the most obvious example of the fog that can enshroud us. Life can be foggy at times. We can live in the fog of work uncertainty, racial and economic inequity, physical and emotional precarity, the threat of international crisis, ideological vengeance and extremism, and simply the basic human struggle of wondering about life's meaning that we all might face from time to time transfiguration can describe our days or the way i heard my father say it from time to time boy it is less than a perfect world <laughs> and it is which is exactly why in the midst of life obscuring transfiguration that is too much with us it becomes even more important for us to hear the biblical story of life's transfiguration. To be sure, we would not pretend to understand either of these stories. That both stories catch us by surprise is a measure of the grace each story embodies. Grace always catches us by surprise. Otherwise, it's not grace. To say it very simply, These stories are not about our needs, our wants, our expectations, our doubts, our assumptions. Both stories are about God. And maybe at its best, that is always what our worship is to be, lifting us beyond ourselves and into that wondrous mystery and glory of God. Now that does not mean there is no takeaway for a Sunday like today. It just means that to gather for the worship of God says we are willing to see our lives first and foremost in light of and in awe of God. We've heard two stories of God, one from the wonder of the Hebrew scriptures, and the other from the good news of Luke. In the first story, Moses has descended from the mountain, carrying the promises of God's covenant for Israel. As he descends the mountain, Moses is unaware that his face shines brighter than if he had spent the entire day getting a royal spa treatment. Some people are like that. Their spirit their presence so effervescent that even if they don't see it, everybody else does. Maybe this is the fullness of faith, to be so enlightened by and with God that one is able to live beyond mirrored self-focus and projected self-image. Moses is aglow, so much so that he puts a veil in front of his face because the fullness of the light shining through him is more than the people can bear. It's a stunning attribution to kindness because Moses will not overwhelm the people he loves, but will bring them along gently and thoughtfully. And the other detail in the story is equally amazing, for we learn that when Moses speaks with God, he removes his veil. It's the willingness to be completely open and vulnerable in the presence of God. That Moses would lay his life bare before God is another remarkable part of the story, because we remember that life had not always been sunny for Moses with God. There were times when Moses pleaded with God to remove him from having to lead his complaining companions in the wilderness. And there were other times when God was all but done with the Israelites and Moses begged for one more chance for all of them. If not a checkered history, it was at times contested. And then there's that little matter of Aaron and the golden calf. While Moses was on the mountain having his tete a tete with God, Aaron and the rest of the crowd have grown restless and fearful, which is never a combination that contributes to the sacred. Believing that an idol of their own ilk was worth more than Moses on the mountain, they threw in their own objects of adoration and then began to worship them. It's the very opposite of living beyond mirrored self-focus and projected self-image, which is the most familiar idolatry still today. And that nearly tore the fabric of the covenant. To put it mildly, God and Moses were most put out because they had in fact been put out. And yet, The surprise of the story, or to say it faithfully, the grace of the story, is that even that most glaring act of self-worship did not diminish God's call to the people Israel. God's covenant call remains. Worship only God and nothing else. Care for the neighbor with acts of peace. Even after such deep failure, God does not relent and is ever more resolute in calling people to live beyond their idolatries, both great and small. And whose face does not shine, realizing God's deep desire for us to live God's way? The question becomes, and it's always been the question. Who is changed by such a calling, by such an encounter? Oscar Romero offered this perspective. When we leave worship, we go out the way Moses descended Mount Sinai, with his face shining with his heart brave and strong to face the world's difficulties. The other story of transfiguration become transfiguration is the gospel story from Luke. It's called the transfiguration. The topography of transfiguration also involves a mountain, and the Bible does love the mountain moment, the view, the clarity, the majesty that can transcend life's less-than-perfect world, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story, each with a slight variation to emphasize a favored angle. Not so much ours for understanding, but much more a grace to be received. The mystery of Christ's transfiguration proclaims him in continuity with and in fulfillment of Israel's faith as figured in the presence of Moses and Elijah. As it was with Moses, who brings God's covenant chiseled in words that are, to be, are, that are to be taken to heart, it is Christ who embodies God's covenant chiseled in word become flesh that is the heart of our faith. Now, as would be true of anyone, the disciples then, no less than we today, don't know exactly what to say about transfiguration. But God, whose mercy is ever abiding, relieves the disciples then and disciples now from having to be wordy about it. The transfiguration is grace received, promise offered, hope inspiring, love enlivening. As it was for Moses and the Israelites, so it is for Christ and the disciples then and now. God is persistent. God is resolute in calling people to live beyond their tired visions and their sleepy spirits, which is how Luke described Peter, James, and John. So, Luke proclaims, That God is neither deterred nor determined by any who might be weighed down. And that's the hope. And that's the grace of transfiguration. That we would seek to make sense or in some way appropriate these shining moments for our living is part of our faith's calling Mystical as both these stories are, they do inform our living in ways that nothing else can. Walter Wink has written Transfiguration is living by vision. Standing four square in the midst of a broken, tortured, oppressed, starving, dehumanizing reality, yet seeing the invisible calling to it to come, behaving as if it is on the way, sustained by elements of it that have come already within and among us. In those moments when people are healed, transformed, freed from addictions, obsessions, destructiveness, self-worship, or when groups or communities or even rarely whole nations glimpse the light of the transcendent in their midst, there the new creation has come upon us. The world, for one brief moment, is transfigured, and the beyond shines in our midst. We worship to be reminded of this greatest of all graces, in this deepest of all realities. Transfiguration stands in stark contrast to a world that seeks to reduce people to one dimension. A reduction that makes life more sterile, more apathetic, more brutish. The triple threat That makes it so easy to see difference as diabolic, opponents as objects, others as inhuman. Transfiguration reminds us that there is more than what we see in the other and maybe even in the self. We know far too well that life can pound the holy right out of you. But Transfiguration says, as Gerard Manley Hopkins penned, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And Frederick Beatner later wrote, it was Jesus of Nazareth, all right, the man they'd tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brothers they knew, The one they'd seen as hungry, tired, foot-sore as the rest of them. But it was also the Messiah, the Christ, in his glory. It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire with it, they were almost blinded. Even with us, something like that happens once in a while. The face of a man walking his child in the park, of a woman picking peas in the garden, of sometimes even the unlikeliest person listening to a concert or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in. Every once and so often, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive, transfigures the human-faced that it's almost beyond bearing. The gospel, the poet, the author, the faithful proclaim even the ordinary has within it an abundance of life. It is the very light of God. And then there's this. After Peter's voice has been silenced, there's another voice from the cloud that speaks that gives direction for the disciples. The admonition from the mountain of transfiguration is implied with the commands Moses brought down the mountain. Listen, said the voice, this is my beloved. Listen to him. And so we ponder what we listen to and how deeply it shapes us? Are we listening only to echoing chambers of ideological comforts? Are we listening only to a person whose opinion holds way too much sway in our living? Are we listening to a figure, religious or political, who has not the humility to remember we all see through a glass darkly? What are we listening to? The voice from the cloud says, listen to my beloved. Of course we know differences remain, for there are claims made in the name of Christ that sound nothing like Christ. Yet still we listen. We listen to Christ, receiving what he speaks and living what he says. Both stories proclaim beyond explaining that Moses and Jesus are changed. They're shining in ways that reveal something of the mystery and the grace of God, and that alone is good enough reason to worship. But The stories invite us to ponder something else. When the grace of transfiguration overshadows the haze of transfiguration, well, then we ask, who? Who is changed?